Welcome to Limitless, the blind beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community, in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsley. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marsley. Thank you for joining us again this week. Our topic today, we wanted to talk about universal design, but we realized that we didn't know that much about it. So we decided to seek out an expert to help us with this topic. But before I introduce him, I just want to introduce my co-host today, Ishita. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Can you maybe uh, let our listeners know why you wanted to be part of this conversation? Yeah. So um, last semester in university, I actually wrote a paper. um, It was kind of an interesting project where we got to research whatever we wanted to. And I decided to look into um, accommodation centers and universities. Um, A lot of universities tend to have them where you, if you have a disability, you register with them and you sort of um, work with them throughout your university degree and receive accommodations from them. So I tend, I did research in looking into how they're actually discriminatory. So it was kind of an interesting stance that I wanted to take. And when I was researching it, I came across the um, concept of universal design. So I did very basic research into it. I don't know too much. Uh, so I wanted to kind of hop into this discussion and, and learn as much as I can about the topic because I thought it was very interesting. Awesome, okay. So our guest, Brad McCannell, is the Vice President, Access and Inclusion at the Rick Hansen Foundation, where he's responsible for the creation and integrity of the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Trademark Program, and it's supporting training. That's a mouthful. Uh, In 1992, Brad formed Canadian Barrier-Free Design to fill the gap between building code requirements and the needs of people with disabilities. As a leader in the field of accessibility, Brad has extensive experience in the practical application of universal design and is the perfect person for us to talk to today. Welcome, Brad. Wow, perfect, eh? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll try Uh, to be perfect. I'm I'm all about the practical application and, and how to make it work in the real world and and uh, since, uh, since 1992, I've been doing that in the real world and taking the seven principles and applying them in and making industry understand how important it is and how, in fact, easy it is. That's great. Um, before you explain what universal design is, can you tell us sort of how you got into this work? I, 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 this is my second career. For the first 25 years of my professional working life, I was in the television industry. And uh, in the process of that, I met a young man named Rick Hansen. And I, I, I heard about him in the newspaper, actually. I, and I heard about this guy who was going to literally wheel around the world. Yes. You know, not uh, the equivalent on a treadmill or something. He was going to go do it. And I, and I was in the, the business at the time. And I thought, I got to go interview this guy because... 
he might not come back. <laughs> so uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to, I was in Rick's apartment the night he left. Wow. And it was so, it, and with all the bed, it was like Santa's workshop for wheelchair users. It was just people putting together chairs and taking apart chairs and packing up chairs. And, and I, I got to sit with Rick. I, I met him. And, and of course, like everybody who meets Rick, I was just completely blown away by it. You know, he's the real deal. He, he is everything that you think he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard to find that these days. But anyway, so that was, uh, that all worked out fine. And, and then some years later, I, I was in the transition mode. I wanted to, I was kind of done with television and I was trying to look for something to do. And I, lo and behold, I got a call from my old friend, Rick saying, I'm going to be doing uh, a, the largest Congress and exposition on disability that's ever been held, at least at that point. It was called Independence 92. And he needed a producer, a project manager to put it together for him. And the fact that I was a wheelchair user was optically really great. Mm. And so I, I took the job as a producer thinking, well, I'm just producing an event. It's like all the hundreds of other ones I've done. And I was suddenly thrust into the world of people with disabilities, which I had avoided. Frankly, I was injured in 1980 and I was quadriplegic after a car accident. And I, uh, I, I, I kind of just didn't want to be involved. I, I wanted to go in my own world and I just, I didn't, I didn't get involved in any kind of activism or anything at all. And then I was thrust into this giant conference of 2,700 delegates from 93 countries around the world. And I, I got to meet Justin Dart, who's one of the, the founders of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. And I, I got to see what was really going on out there and it changed me. And I, I realized that I had a role to play in this because I was good with communications and I felt that the, the community really needed some help in communications. But bigger than that, uh, for the conference itself, we needed 242 wheelchair accessible hotel rooms just for the wheelchair users. We had 2,700 delegates, remember? Wow. And so uh, at the time, in all of the lower mainland of Vancouver, there were seven. And so seven rooms? Yeah, seven accessible rooms. In the oh, my goodness. That's a. That's terrible. All the way to the valley, you know, it was, you know, and it was ninety-two. You know, it was still early, early days in the whole access movement. But we need, we knew we had a big problem, and I went to the hotel association and I said, "Here's our problem," and they said, "Well, uh, if you tell us how to fix it, we'll do it." And that created the issue. We, nobody really knew what to do. So me, uh, Nancy Thompson, Joe Hurd. We had to become the experts on how to create this meaningful access. And we did quite well, if I don't mind saying so myself. But at the end of the process, I thought I would just go back into television and mind my own business. <laughs> but the phone started to ring and it was Corporate Canada saying, you know what, we heard your message. The hotel associations called, the, the employment opportunities all called and said, we heard this. So how, how can we make our business more accessible? And so I, I, I did a couple of projects off the side of my desk, but it became really obvious really quickly that there was, there was a real need here, but there was also a huge opportunity here to create a consulting company that would address these things. And so that's what you referred to earlier. In 1992, I created Canadian Barrier Free Design to fill that gap between building code and the real needs of the community because code, code, it may seem funny from a wheelchair user, but code those bloody code guys they've dominated the code since day one we've dominated the regulations we've dominated the 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 whole the whole discussion around disability you know if you ask a person on the street 
about disability, the first thing that pops in their head is a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. got, got the international symbol for people with disabilities is a wheelchair. And yet mm -hmm. the mobility crowd is less than 30% of the community of people with disabilities. So it became really obvious that if you just followed code, that you weren't going to be accessible, you were legal. And, and you know, you met that kind of thing, but there was this in the industry in, in the hotel industry or well, the whole industry, the construction industry, the design industry, there was this feeling that if you met code, you were accessible. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. So uh, that conference pointed me in that direction. And, and as I say, it completely changed my life. I, I abandoned my whole television career and started this one. And that was 27 years ago now. So wow, I've been around the block on this one a couple of times. That's great. I, I'm, I'm kind of stunned that people actually were calling you to say, hey, how can we be more accessible? I feel like we need that to be happening more now, actually. <laughs> well, it, it is. It's hard. I know it's hard to see from, from where you sit. But the reality is the industry, the problem has always been that they were never invited to the table. Right. As, as a community, we demanded more access mm. and we demanded better codes and we demanded harsher enforcement. But nobody ever went to the industry itself and said, here's what actually has to be done. Instead, they got a pile of regulations thrown on their desk, and it became an adversarial situation. Mm -hmm. They saw us as nothing but another, you know, as far as they were concerned, they met code. They were accessible. Nobody took the time to say, no, no, code's not access. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't build a house to a code minimum. The accessibility features of any code, they're the, the only code that people would rely on to set the bar. Mm -hmm. you, you would never build a house to code minimum because a house to code minimum wouldn't have any windows. Right. There's no requirement for windows in the code. Okay. If you have windows, there's, there's requirements. But if you don't have windows, there's no requirement for a second door. There's no requirement for any of the things we love in our homes. No one would ever build a house to code and expect to sell it. That's and a great They example. rely on code. They say, well, somehow magically code is going to meet our needs. And... Uh, by nature, it takes an average of seven to 12 years to change a code. Mm. So they're always behind. And that's the nature of codes. And, and honestly, that's right. And that's good. The industry needs that stability. Because remember, when you're building something in that world, it's got a lifespan of 50 to 80 years. Mm -hmm. So they need that. They need that code. But let's not confuse that with accessibility. That's not what access is. Okay, can you explain what is universal design and maybe talk a bit about the seven principles? I can. I, 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 it, it, you need to understand the history a little bit. Um, the original concept of universal design came from Dr. Ron Mace uh, in the early 80s. And he was working with the uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America. And it was going okay, but there was a funding issue. He then approached the um, AARP, the American Association of Retired People, I think it is, mm -hmm. and he pitched this idea of, of what, what would become universal design. He called it an adaptable design in those days. And the AARP loved the idea of, of creating these new standards, but um, really did not like the idea, like most older adults and seniors, don't consider themselves as people with disabilities, even though... They certainly have disabilities, but they wanted to get the disabled language out of it. 
And so Ron decided to call it universal design. And because of that, he got funding from the AARP to move and create the Universal Design Center over at the uh, University of North Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina, and create the Universal Design Center, which I, it's still operating. I, I highly recommend it as a site. Just Google Universal Design Center and you'll come up with it. They have tremendous resource for how to build things and, and training programs and all of that kind of stuff. But understanding that one of Ron's key goals was to get the disabled language out of it. We should, when there's no need to talk about disability. It's not about disability, it's about ability. It's about the, the seven principles, right? It's about equitable use. So is the design useful and marketable people with diverse abilities? Mm -hmm. It's about flexibility. It's about simple and intuitive use. It's perceptible information. It's tolerance for area for error rather, uh, low physical resistance. There's a seventh one, low size and space and approach. So it, it's, it's guiding principles for designers, for planners, but it's at the same time, it, it, it's, it's a way of seeing the built environment. You literally see the built environment differently when you look at it through a universal lens because you're, you're seeing the, the nature of universal design. It, it, it removes tripping hazards, for example just by nature is a safer place to be. It, it's, there's, a, there's an old saying in, in the design world that to, um, to err is human, but to forgive is design. And that's the key of it. That's what design really is. How do you interact, in, 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 create an interface between the human being and the facility? That's what design is. And the easier you can do that, the more invisible it becomes, the better it is. And that's universal design's goal is, is to make it work the best for the most people. And so if you do it right, so people ask me all the time, can you send me a really good a picture of some really good accessible design? And it's really hard because if it's done right, it's invisible. Mm. If it's done right, it just like, looks like any other place. So it, it's important to understand the universal, the principles of universal design, but it's more important to understand how that practical application occurs. At the same time, you can't, there are, there, there's other design disciplines that are equally important. You know, you often hear people refer to barrier-free design. That's not a catch-all for accessibility either. Barrier-free design is a specific solution for a specific disability at a specific location. And it came out of the Second World War when veterans were returning home and, and maybe used a wheelchair or something. And, you know, we had to get Frank into the church. So what they would do is they'd build a, a ramp at the back door, usually about 40 degrees, and someone would grab him by the wheelchair and just shove him off the ramp and stick him in the back of the room. And we'd achieved access for him. He was able mm -hmm. to go to church, not independently, not on his own, not safe, mm -hmm. not, even, not even a lot of dignity involved. But God damn it, we got Frank in the church. Well, barrier-free design, you know, in today's application, you go to a washroom. There's only one stall that's going to be big enough for a typical wheelchair or scooter user. If it was universal, they'd all be big. Right. So that's not practical in the real world. Just like parking. Universal design would say, well, they all should be big. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not practical. So that practical application thing, sometimes you have to rely on barrier-free approaches. 
you try to rely on universal as much as you can because it eliminates more problems for more people. But at, at the same time, you have to you have to be a realist. And, and, and real estate value means you can't have a parking lot with all oversized spaces. That's just that's just that reality. Okay, so I mean, you've consulted on Olympics, um, many Vancouver landmarks, the the airports, like different. Can you maybe walk us through? Like, how does this process work? How do you make decisions then about how many bigger parking spots you're going to have or how many accessible, you know, larger washrooms? Like, how do you make those decisions? You have to understand the occupancy and user group that's being targeted. So you, you literally set a target level of accessibility. Um, and, and it depends on, on what you're doing. The other thing you have to be very cognizant of is that removing a barrier for one group may create a barrier for another group. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a, a, an active example we have right now. I've done a lot of work with Vancouver International Airport over the last 30 years. Um, very proud of that particular uh, project. It, it's just, it's universal design personified. For example, if you go into YVR, you don't, you don't see the little wheelchair guy almost anywhere. The only place you'll find him is in the whole rooms. Uh, mm -hmm. Some seats are designated for, for uh, with the little international wheelchair symbol. But other than that, you don't see him. He's not on the washrooms. He's not on the counters. It's because everything works for everyone there. Right. But where we ran into a problem was it's a glass and tile building. It's 2 million square feet. So it's a giant echo chamber. For our clientele who use the airport, the largest disability group by a mile are people with hearing loss. Mm. we don't even actually know how many because people with hearing loss typically don't report it, right? Mm -hmm. I can hear fine if you stop mumbling. Right. right? <laughs> and so uh, we don't have real accurate numbers there. We have some pretty good numbers, but we know that we had to do something to dampen down the, uh, the sound levels. So we had two tangible things, real product, uh, practical things we could do. The first thing we knew that in a big glass building like that, what people tend to do is they turn their hearing aids off because they're afraid that a public address system will come on and make an announcement and just blow their heads off. Mm. And you hear it all the time. You know, it's like, immediately. Oh, my God. But it, so people would turn off their hearing aids. So now instead of dealing with people who are hard of hearing, we're dealing with people who are deaf with no deaf skills. Mm -hmm. So from our perspective, 26 million people a year go through that particular airport, or used to before COVID. So we had to find a way of doing it. So we took the public address system and, and added, I think, three times the typical number of uh, speakers. In YVR, you're never more than six meters away from a speaker. Oh, wow. That allowed us to turn the volume way down. And so now people come in, the heads don't get blown off, so they leave their hearing aids on, and they we have that benefit because they have that benefit. Right. So that's one important thing we did there. But where the conflict came is we also put in a lot of carpet. Carpet mm -hmm. dampens sound, keeps the echoes down, changes the acoustics, makes things more, especially when you're you know, either in a holding area or a restaurant, you're waiting. Mm -hmm. Keeping noise levels down is really important. So we did quite a bit of carpet. Recognizing, however, that people using wheeled mobility devices hate carpet. You know, wheelchair, wheelchair users don't want carpet on anything. And people hard of hearing want carpet on everything. 
Right. So how do you square that circle? You, 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 you're removing a barrier for one group, you're adding a barrier to the next. Well, in our case, the, the numbers just were staggeringly in favor of people hard of hearing. Okay, so that, that doesn't mean it's the end, of the, the end of the discussion. So what we did is we took the carpet, we took all the underlay out, and we used closed loop, uh, direct glue down carpet tiles. So there was nothing to roll up in front of you that, that you weren't bunching in. Mm -hmm. And it, it made, it, it was the compromise. It was as easy as I could make it possible to roll on. But at the same time, it's still carpet. Carpet is carpet. And so uh, what do you do? Do you, do you serve the most people? Or do you, or do you focus on that, that minority group? Well, for us and that volume, we stayed with the carpet. Constantly mm. looking for new solutions. Like one of the things we're trying right now, for example, is called a, a path within a path. So the carpeted ramp weighed down to pure, uh, pure C or known sort of A pure, where the idea is to put in a couple of concrete pad like tracks to go up. Mm -hmm. we did that. So we still have our carpet, but the wheelchair users have a little trail they can come up kind of thing. And so that might be a solution there, but but everything in access is a compromise. Everything you do for one group will affect another group. And so yeah, the, that, that's where the principles of universal design come in and really save the day because you start talking about that equitable use, that flexibility, perceptible information, tolerance for error, all that stuff comes in there. I know the, the curb cutouts um, can create some difficulty for people who are blind lining up on the curb edge to cross the street sort of so there yeah that's another example of like it's helping one group and then <laughs> causing some difficulty for another or the bumps or the um what do you call that tactile paving wayfinding is probably yeah. a, a nuisance to a person in a wheelchair yeah they're called twizzies tactile right. warning surface indicators mm -hmm. and uh yeah they do and and, and again practical if you're if you're in a snow climate and trying to remove snow off the curb ramp those little bumps are just torturous. Mm. I mean, so there's all kinds of problems, and there's no real evidence. I mean, I mean, your your listeners will know more than I on this one, but there's no real evidence that they do that much good for your community because you weren't consulted in the process. <laughs> well, honestly, we usually know when we get to the end of a block. <laughs> so if it's if it's really flat to the street, then maybe yeah, you do need something to tell you that there's. That you're about to cross but it is interesting yeah, well that whole that they're known as truncated domes mm -hmm. yellow bumps and uh, you know that used to mean this is an extreme hazard do not cross this line like a subway platform or right the sky train you know, platform a, a serious drop off mm -hmm. well now it seems to me uh, you know you want to maybe want to be careful here mm. <laughs> so again I, I went through a whole bunch of this about uh, eight nine years ago trying to help the city of Vancouver work out some separation between bikes and pedestrian walkways. Yes. And that whole issue came up. But I, I started talking to the community about this. And, and the more I talked to them, the more I realized nobody had communicated to you guys, your federations, your organizations, or even people with lived experience. These truncated domes just showed up. And they came out of the ADA is where it came from originally. And, and suddenly they were just, on every curb ramp and they were on every corner and and there was no messaging there. I, I talked to the Guide Dogs International and they said, you know, 
if you want us to, we can start you know, training dogs to identify these things. And, but, but nobody said anything to us about this. You know, I, I, talked to the, I talked with the Council of the Blind in Canada and, and they said nobody had talked to them. I talked to the CNIB and I said nobody had talked to them. Mm-hmm. These things just suddenly started to appear. And I, I think it was because it was a way of, it's a really visible thing, which is kind of an odd thing when you think about it. It's a really <laughs> visible way for facility guys to say, look what I did. Mm-hmm. I did something. Aren't I good? Well, and people point them out. There's blind bumps on the corner. They'll say, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. it's exciting. Like, oh, look at this. This is for you. Like, yeah, I don't know if I needed it, but that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, this is for you. It, it, it's a surprise gift. Well, you know, I rather <laughs> had a little input into this thing. Yes. You know, it, but you know, uh, but at the same time, twizzies or tactile warning or tactile walking surface indicators can be really useful like we've i've had some success with them um, i recommended they get installed in skytrain stations i love that and although so, it is interesting they guide you to the elevator not to the escalator or the stairs so there's sort of this implication that if you're blind you can't do the stairs i know baby steps right I, it's a huge <laughs> battle huge battle uh, you know and they, they, they it was somehow they could accept the idea of taking you to the elevator mm-hmm. but Going anywhere else seemed just completely beyond their scope. Right. So baby steps, we do what we can. But the other problem on the on the Twizzies is that the International Standards Organization, the ISO, was trying to create international standards for tactile warning systems. And they completely failed. They, they tried for six years, and they finally threw up their hands and said, wow, you guys can't get, agree on anything. And so they didn't get an international standard. So all we've got to work with now are the truncated domes, which used to mean stop and now mean, eh, be careful. Mm. And the uh, directional ones, which are the straight line ones that guide you along. And that, those are the only two we got to work with. And it's too bad because I, I think there's a real opportunity that wayfinding in general is a whole a vast area of opportunity. You know, every, every building, every project has an interior design group and they all use paint and they all use color and they all use texture. Mm-hmm. If that was coordinated and to use property, like, Again, at YVR, I, we're just a little island of access there. But in our world, if if you're connected, if sorry, if you're standing on tile or terrazzo, you're connected to an exit. If you're standing on carpet, you're connected to a gate. And if you're on anything else, you're in retail. Uh, That's really? not a national standard. That's uh. what we've done. And what, like, so our process was to reach out to the you know various rehab professionals to say, here's what we've done. This is this is good information. And you pass it on when you when you go through your rehab. Processes. Right. I didn't oh. know that. That would have been helpful to know for the last well, couple see, decades. That, that's a failing <laughs> on my part, then. I, you know, you, you, we we reached out, we reached out, and and you move on, kind of thing. And you think that those things will just carry on, but mm-hmm. you got to babysit them a little harder. So, I, well, I, it's I not really say that I'm gonna I'm gonna make some no. Money. But I mean, once you're an adult, if you have mobility skills, you might never have mobility again, mobility training, right? So I don't get mobility when I go to the airport. I you just use the skills I have. So if no one tells me, you know, if I just don't hear about it, I'm not going to know. Of course. Yeah. And, and that's and that that's why I, I worked so hard. I came to the Rick Hansen Foundation six years ago after being an independent professional access consultant for 20 some odd years. Um, for the sole purpose of creating the our, our, our accessibility certification program, and its real purpose in life is to create common language, common methodology, and standardized training. 
So that right now what happens is when someone says to you, I, I want my building to be accessible, the next question out of your mouth has to be to who? Mm. Wheelchair users, the people with vision loss, the people who are deaf. Mm -hmm. And and then they you know, oh, we want it to be fully accessible. No, you don't. You don't want uh, you don't want to, you don't really. You're going to fund that. You're going to have sign language interpretation on every corner. You're going to have alternate formats for everything. Are you going to you're fully accessible, accessible to all people with all disabilities at all times? That's not what you mean. So back to that target level of accessibility, back to that idea of the practical application. What are you really trying to achieve? And even within that, you know, oh, I, want my, I want my facility to be wheelchair accessible. Oh, wheelchair accessible to who? To Rick Hansen, the guy who rolled around the world? Right. <laughs> Brad McCann, a, a C6 quadriplegic who looks at a 1 in 12 ramp and starts writing his will. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Access is not black and white. That's the other thing that people, especially in the industry, don't get. It's not a yes or no situation. You're not accessible or not. It's all gray. Because all of us have such broad, different you know, requirements or... Mm -hmm. I hate the word accommodation because it, it, accommodation means you're separating somebody. You know, the value of universal design is it unites us. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, we're going to have to accommodate somebody. Well, that means you're going to set up a separate way of handling things. I, I'll just use YVR one more time. They're my favorite client. I've been with them for almost 30 years. But one of the things that they did there is they did they do ex exit surveys all the time just to ask people how their experience was. One year we focused on older adults and seniors and people with visible disabilities. We said, how would you find the airport? It was great. Why? Don't know. <laughs> Perfect answer. Right. It's exactly, I don't want you to know. I mean, you oh. weren't separated. You weren't handled different. You just came in, you walked along, you bought a $17 tuna sandwich. <laughs> you, know, you, you did all the things that all the rest of us do. You know, you yeah. curse the baggage guys, you, you know, stuff you <laughs> normally do. And so you weren't handled, especially you weren't running those separate tunnels. You didn't get parked in an area and it will be back for you and they never uh, come back. Yes. None yes. Of that. <laughs> so you know, it's really important to understand that access isn't one thing, it's everything. And the other thing about access is it breeds access. The more access you create, the more you're going to need. And that's the very nature of inclusion. When you start bringing people out and they start realizing they can be part of it, well, they'll bring someone with them. And every time you expand that circle, because of our differing differing abilities, you know, I'm a C6 quadriplegic. You can put me right beside another one and we don't have the same abilities or the mm -hmm. same needs. Right. But when you expand that circle and expand that circle, that's why it, it it's not a finite thing. You can't say, okay, I'm accessible now. Yeah, I'm done. You're not done. Well, you've been saying you've been working with the airport for 30 years. So obviously this is an ongoing process. Yeah. And, and to YVR's credit, you know, even when the big COVID crunch happened and they had to let a lot of people go, they didn't let me go. They mm -hmm. kept the access up. They knew it was important. Mm -hmm. It was a culture. What we're able to do there is literally shift the culture because I, I couldn't be there for every situation, every minute, every time. So we taught the management to ask a simple question. How will this affect people with disabilities? Whatever you're doing. And it might not. But did you ask the question? You know, when you ordered business cards, did you order those silly cards with the, the little light gray printing in the little corner and, your, and the tiny little letters in the name and the biggest thing on there is a logo that nobody cares about? Did you order Braille? Mm -hmm. 
No, I know that needed to. Did you, but did you ask the question? Obviously, if you're HR or if you're any executive levers, you really need Braille. But did you ask the question? When did you ask the question when you staffed and you bought the refrigerator for the staff room? Did you buy the same old fridge that you know with short people can't reach the top? Or did you buy one with double doors where there's range of motion for everyone? Did, when you ordered furniture, did it variable height? When you ordered carpet, was it you know direct glue down and no underlay? All these things. Did you ask the question, how will this affect people with disabilities? We taught them to ask that at YBR. And so I didn't have to monitor 2 million square feet. I just had to monitor the culture itself and help them understand the return on investment, how this really works, how this pays for itself in spades, and by how the, the concept of inclusion really brings people into your building. It brings yes. people in and, and their wallets. Yeah. You know, I, I, I often say, you know, a barrier to a person with a disability is a barrier to making a profit. I want them to want my money as much as they want anybody's money. Yeah. I think when, when you were talking, I kind of had like a flashback to a memory that I had. Um, and I can't remember who this was who said this to me, but um, we were talking about I think they or someone that they know was employed at a university for individuals with disabilities. Um, so universal design was kind of baked into their whole um, establishment. We didn't call it universal design because I didn't know what it was called at the time. But um, yeah. uh, one thing that we were talking about was stairs. So they like asked me, um, so they have ramps uh, a lot in a lot of their, um, just kind of throughout their facility. And, and they asked me why I thought that was. And I'm like, oh, for individuals with mobility issues, um, it would be very helpful for them. They're like, well, that's the obvious answer. Uh, that's what a lot of people think. But one big contributing factor was um, for individuals who are hearing impaired, because while they're, if they're signing to one another, having to interrupt their conversation and, um, you know, look at the stairs or use the stairs, it was a hassle and we didn't want that to happen. We wanted everyone to feel comfortable and um, able to, to, interact with everyone as they would normally so that was a big contributing to like factor why they had ramps put yeah, into a lot able of to walk and talk at the same time yeah mm -hmm. and i was like wow <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> i never thought of that um so that i don't remember who said that but I, that kind of reminded me of this conversation but um a question that i had was you briefly talked about it but um, and I love the house analogy you gave earlier on in the discussion um kind of like i want to know what the consult like consultation part of um, your process is with the industry or with a company who's looking to make everything accessible. I'm assuming it's like a lengthy process because if they come to you saying, hey, we want it, want it to be accessible with everyone. Um, and then you kind of propose the questions and narrow things down. I'm just curious about how that whole process um, works. Uh, it, it depends on what level you're coming in at. I always try to come in at an executive level um, and I'll use YVR one more time. I, I, when I was brought into there, I, I made a presentation to the uh, executive committee designing this brand new thing called the International Terminal Building. And having a discussion with them, what, what happened there was they saw it. They saw, they saw the concept. They saw the idea. They saw the return on investment. They saw the idea that a barrier to first one disability is a barrier to making a profit. They saw it very clearly. Um, in that particular case, I started with disability awareness training for them at that level. Mm -hmm. And what that did is that started to shift the culture immediately because lower management saw the level of commitment that was being made. And so 
you know, you know, gosh, you know, the, the executive director of YVR is doing it. I guess I better take it seriously. Often I get brought in at a middle management stage where people don't really have, they have the power to say no, but not the power to say yes. Mm-hmm. And so that can be problematic. But in terms of the process, it's really to establish, you know, the occupancy of the building. In other words, what goes on in that building? Who are the most likely, you know, if you're running a rehab center, you probably need more accessible spots than code minimum. Um, if, if you're running a shopping mall, you're going to need more, you know, more parking spaces, more everything. Um, the other, you know, your washrooms, the next big thing is, is washrooms. People are discovering now the uh, these large gang style common washrooms aren't, aren't working well, especially for older adults and seniors. So what the process is, is who are your target users and both sides of the counter now. So who are your, who are your customers, for lack of a better word, um, on the one hand, but also don't forget that we, we talk a lot about the aging population and the impact that's having on disability rates. Don't forget that that means your, your workforce is aging too. And so as your workforce continues to age, you're going to need to be making accommodations um, within the workspace to keep them, to retain those employees, to make them want to stay. And so it's really about establishing that target level of accessibility. And, and, and it's hard because by nature, as soon as you set a target level, you're excluding somebody. And so that it's a hard process for management to do, but in reality is everybody does it all the time. They just don't think it through. So, you know, when you, when you, whatever you build, if you build the code minimum, you've are, you've set a target level of accessibility to code. It's called the code minimum access strategy. That's not going to cut it. So, okay. How, how do we better accommodate your client, your clients for that specific use for that building for that time? So it's a matter of working through that. I like to create a design criteria manual from that information, which is the, the Bible for new construction or major renovation, if it's an existing building or if it's a new project, it's even better because now it's lines on a piece of paper and we can do anything we want. Really cheap to make changes on lines on a piece of paper. <laughs> but how, understanding why and how and how that works. Like you mentioned a moment ago about the, uh, the advantage of ramps for people using sign language. It's a classic example of, of how the, the assumption was that it's all for it was for wheelchair users, but it's used by everybody else. You know, another technique is to put a uh, one of those convex mirrors up in the corner when you're walking down hallways. Big collision hazard for people with hearing loss because they don't hear anybody coming. Mm-hmm. It's a big collision hazard. So by putting one of those mirrors up in the corner, you just glance and you can see you're done. One of the things I like to do personally, I like to cut corners off. On, on 90 degree corners, I cut them to 45s. Every time you see a 90 degree corner with a big scratch or a bang in it, that means somebody's hit it, probably with a wheelchair. Mm. And you know the, the operator will see that as a maintenance issue. I see that as a collision hazard. So by cutting off that corner, now that opens that up and makes it easier to go, feeds into that idea of walking and talking at the same time, all that kind of stuff. But we just did that, for example, at the Wavefront Center in uh, Vancouver, which is, used to be the Western Institute for the Deaf. And they spent a lot of time, and in fact, they got the highest rating on our, our RHFAC program that we've ever done, because they did that. They, they recognized that it's not just a building for people who are deaf. 
it's a building that's going to have to accommodate all manner of disabilities. So they, they, they took that into account in that planning stage. And I was, I was privileged to be part of that planning. And so that's when it happens. Whether you're planning a, a major rental or, or even just an upkeep of an existing building, you have to have a place to start. And that's where the design criteria manual comes in really handy. If you don't want to go that far, you still need a place to start. You need to know what you're dealing with right now. The Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program does. It identifies your space, what's there now. Not the code police, not coming in saying, here's what you did wrong, but rather here's what's here right now. Here's who it affects. And based on your needs, your company needs, your client needs, your based on that, what changes can we make to accommodate more people better? So it's a it's a it's an inclusive process in terms of you have to understand the needs of the business itself, but you also don't want to paint yourself into a corner. You don't want to you don't want to do something you know if the user group changes or something changes down the road with the the, the type of building it is. You don't want to you don't want to create something that works perfectly for people with hearing loss and doesn't work for anybody else. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a tightrope, but it's uh, the, I worked on mega projects like the 2008 uh, uh, Olympic Games in Beijing, the 2010 Games here, mm-hmm. uh, Winter Games. I worked on those mega projects, and I worked on a local bakery, and it's you know. It's always the same though. If you don't have a commitment from management, if you don't have that understanding, they don't need to understand what universal design is. They have to understand why they need it. They have to understand the right questions to ask of their designers, of their or of their planners, or you know, you know, small groups don't use those guys, but even an architect. Understanding that and understanding that the culture, the design build culture, the design planning culture has not had anything to do with disability other than code minimum access. And as soon as they're exposed to it, it's, it's remarkable how open that community is once they realize that they're missing the mark. So if somebody <clears throat> uses a space, lives in a building or works in a building that you know is not meeting their needs, do they have any, like what can they do? do if they're they're the user themselves so they're not the one that gets to make these decisions but if if i'm understanding you right even even code might not be not upheld right like if it's an older building and it doesn't have braille in the elevator or or maybe it doesn't even have an elevator like are there certain standards that have to be upheld remember that any buildings only responsible to meet the code at the time it was designed ah not when it was built, the code at the time it was designed. Wow. And so we didn't start seeing really much in the way of code change until early 70s. Uh, and then there was really just grab bars and parking spaces, not much more than that. But um, the other the problem happened there was with the building inspectors didn't know what to look for. So I've got a standing bet with architects out there. I bet you a hundred bucks you can't find me a building anywhere that was built to meet the local access requirements of the code of the day not the code today mm. but the code of the day and i'm I, I, the rich hansen foundation's in a building that's about 10 years old not even that actually probably less and it's out at the bcit aerospace campus beautiful building we rented the uh, uh the big section of, of i think the second floor third floor 
And uh, they knew that the Rick Hansen Foundation was going to be there. So probably a high likelihood of mobility yes. uh, issues there. Certainly a lot of people with disabilities in any case. And so we moved in and the, the common washroom for the floor didn't have even a grab bar. Oh, wow. And so how did that get an occupancy permit? How did that get past everybody? Well, it's because they don't know what to look for. The, you know, the, 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 there's no training. There's no requirement in, in architect school to learn anything about being accessible, which just shocks me. To me, it'd be like being a doctor without learning anything about nutrition. Like, mm -hmm. how do you, unless you know what goes into it, how do you know how it works? But there is no requirement. And, and the thing is, as I go through training and, and teaching people, and we, we've set up a number of great training programs, online training programs available through the foundation. But the thing that always amazes me is how the light goes on for that person. And, and they, it, it's an absolute revelation to them. I, I had one person come into our, 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 our formal Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Training Program. I've got to get a better name for that, don't I? <laughs> um, uh, who had eight years as an access consultant. She considered herself a professional access consultant for eight years. And she kind of came in and she was like, oh, I got this. This is a rubber stamp for me. I'm just gonna, I'm just getting this for the resume. And she was kind of, if you guys need help, I'll help you out. And at the end of the first day, she stopped and apologized to the entire class. She said, I had no idea. I had no idea what this really meant. I, I was so focused on wheelchairs. You know, I didn't understand the concept that a handrail is wayfinding. Mm -hmm. It's not just support. And a handrail tells you where landings are. Tells you how to wrap around and be safe and uh, out of the path of travel when you get to the bottom of the stairs. All yeah. these things that just never even occurred to her. And so, it, we're we're starting from such a ground zero here because this, and it's this dreaded, horrible, terrible thing called code. And people think that if I meet code, I'm accessible. No, if you meet code, you're accessible to Rick Hansen. Mm. And frankly, that's about it. And so it, that's that's the challenge for us. Is, uh, it's pure education, and, and we 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 need to educate the entire culture on, on you know just the value of people with disabilities. You know that, that we're not you know we're either portrayed as superhumans, you know, like you know Paralympic athletes or whatever, mm -hmm. yeah, or or simply hopeless. Yes, and very often, very rarely are we portrayed as just people. And so that notion in the general population, you know, we fight that all the time. We've got a program at Rick Hansen called Everyone Everywhere. Uh, and it's just that idea that, well, it's a double entendre. Every, first off, we all have a right to access. Everyone has that right everywhere. But the other thing, it's the other side of that coin is the concept of temporarily able-bodied. You know, we call able-bodied people tabs. Mm -hmm. because they're only temporarily able buddy. It doesn't matter if you do a face plant when you're a teenager and you end up in a wheelchair or you're 65 and you got a hearing aid and a walker, you're going to have a disability. The only question is when and for how long. So it's not about somebody else. And when that message starts, I, I, I talk to architects a lot and when the, the, the lights just go on, you can just see it. Yes. And it's, just, it's just that they've never been exposed to it. You know, we hear all, oh, these architects are terrible. No, they're not. They're just uninformed. You know, I, I call it an informed design. That that's really what it is. You know, and that's the three major elements to create meaningful access. Now, meaningful access is a term all by itself. 
meaningful access to me means the whole experience. From the moment you walk in the front door to the moment you walk out. And what happens right now is, you know, a facility guy will grab a checklist from somewhere. I hate checklists. <laughs> And everybody's got them, building codes got them, and every association has them. But the facility guy will grab the checklist and go up to the washroom. Oh, look, we got grab bars, check. Oh, look, there's a lowered urinal, check. The paper towel's in the right spot for a change, check. And he comes out of the saying, well, that's a pretty accessible washroom, look at that. And you go over to the elevator and say, oh, look, it's a light-colored floor, check. It's got braille on the button, check. Got a handrail, not just a, a, a guard bar, a, a barrier bar. Check, check. And he'll come out and say, oh, look, we're pretty accessible. Well, no, you're not. You, you've got a nice washroom, maybe. But you didn't tell me if it's the top of a set of stairs. <laughs> all right? you, you've got all these features. It's the whole experience. You know, can I can I get to the reception desk? Can I could I work there? Mm-hmm. It's that whole experience. So meaningful access to me, if you're building. If you're measuring access, you have to measure meaningful access, the whole experience of the user going in and out of the building. And so having that perspective alone is a giant, giant leap for the architectural world. The other thing that people have to remember is we, we like to blame architects, uh, but they, as they've told me a hundred times, we can design anything, but the owner has to want it first. Mm-hmm. And so that goes to return on investment. The owner has to understand what this really means. And you know, one of the most basic things it means is if I'm a leaseholder in one of your buildings, or I'm you know, or I'm somebody who owns a building, I'm a big enough company that I own my own building. If I'm if I create real meaningful access, I now have access to this vast pool of unemployed people. Mm-hmm. If you're not accessible, the greatest, you know, you know gosh, the, the, the best employment equity program in the world doesn't mean anything if I can't get into a front door. Yeah. Accessible destinations, you know, accessible transportation rather becomes less urgent when there's no accessible destinations is why we focused on the built environment. And so changing it there, it, it, that's the key understanding. We're making sure that owners see that. You know, we, we, there's a great study from the Conference Board in Canada. And we asked them if everybody um, met our minimum standard, our, our, our base uh, 60% of our program, uh, 60% compliance level of our program, uh, we call it accessibly certified. If everybody in just the retail and commercial sectors did that, so set aside all the other stuff for a moment, what would that mean to the economy? And so what they determined, uh, the Conference Board of Canada determined, was that 57% of the um, community of people with disabilities who are ready, willing, and able to work, so not the whole community, because some people just simply can't, mm-hmm. of those who wanted to or could, 57% of us are unemployed. And that's because of that lack of access in those two sectors. If that was removed, if those two sectors even met a minimal level of accessibility, it would mean $16.8 billion to the gross domestic product. Wow. If there were $16 billion buried out in the road somewhere, we would go dig it up. Right. (laughs) If we needed special tools to do that, well, by golly, we'd invent the tools. And if we needed training to operate those tools, it would all be done. Mm-hmm. But somehow we're content to just leave that laying there. And, and when I give that message to the industry, that's when the lights go on. 
And so it's it's creating that understanding of the return on investment. So I am how... focusing on the industry all along here. The advocates have an incredibly important role here. But what one of the problems the industry has is right now is they're doing this thing. You know, you've heard the battle cry. Nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. Great, great. But that doesn't mean just go ask a wheelchair guy. No, that doesn't mean get a, uh, let's put together a volunteer committee. Let's get, hey, I'm the committee. And all the able-bodied people take notes and try to transform that into policy. It doesn't mean that. It means putting people with disabilities in decision-making positions. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. And when you do that, you change the culture. And when you change the culture, we can't keep playing this game of whack-a-mole. We're running from facility to facility. You know, a, new, a new library gets announced. We run over, oh, you got to be accessible. And here's how you do it. Oh, there's a new pool. Oh, we all run over there and say, oh, you got to be accessible. But nobody's connecting the dots. Nobody's working on the intersections or all the connective pathways that have required to make that stuff work. We're just running from spot to spot to spot. We create these little islands of access. We can't keep doing this. The only way to get around that is to change the culture, to get the people doing the work right now. The answer is not to create a whole bunch more access consultants. We have to stop people from making new mistakes. And they're building new mistakes all the time because when they do that, we're stuck with that building for 50 to 80 years. Mm-hmm. We're stuck with those mistakes. So if we don't change that culture, if we don't adjust that approach, so making sure under, owners and operators understand the return on investment, you know, they're moaning and, oh, we can't find any employees. It's just terrible. We need to increase immigration. Right. Yeah. No, no, that's not what you need to do. There's a huge workforce waiting, begging, lots. Yes. Boy, if you want a if you want a good manager, if you want a problem solver, hire a person with a disability. Nobody solves problems like us. Just to get up in the morning and get to work. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we, true. we problem solve all day. Yes. So it's it's, just, it's so it, it's so vexing to sit here and listen to moan and be going, oh God, we can't find anybody. Did you look? Mm-hmm. And what have you done to be proactive about that? Just, so much low-hanging fruit. There's so so simple things. It's, it's the attitudinal barriers that are the problem. I know oh. you feel that way as well. So what do we do about that? Like, how do we change this? What is the answer? Well, one of the answers is for us as a community to demand more. We are somehow content. It's an old joke in our business. If you want to all go to a restaurant is ask a wheelchair guy because he probably came in through the kitchen. Mm. This idea that backdoor entry is okay this idea that i could buy a brand new house right now and i'd have to spend a hundred grand to make it work for me why are we letting them build this we we know i said that we've just been several studies we just did another one at the rick hansen foundation we asked hcml architect hcma hcma architecture to do a study for it how much does it cost to go to our top level of accessibility how much do you have to spend on a new building how much more would you have to spend? The answer is zero. When you design it properly, it costs nothing. We know it costs nothing, and yet we we they keep building this stuff. And, and we, as a community, need to demand more. Older adults and seniors need to demand more. This idea that that they got you know the empty nesters. We're going to buy a house that works better for us. Well, does it work better for you with its twenty-eight inch doors and its stairs and its mm-hmm. you know, all that code minimum stuff? So as a community, we have to demand more. As an industry, we have to we have to get educated, which is my whole focus right now through training, trying to get people up to speed, to understand the return on investment, to understand 
it's really it's it's so easy it's crazy and we just you just literally have to see the built environment a little differently the advantage we have is once people start seeing that they can't stop so once you start seeing barriers to people with disabilities you know you, you just can't stop and so mm -hmm. once we get them trained up it usually works pretty well but it's that it's that attitudinal barrier has to shift they have to understand it's not about somebody else they have to understand it's a huge barrier to making a profit and they have to understand that it's not a small part of the population. Right now, I think 24% of the population reports having a significant disability reports is a keyword. But let's just take that number out in its face value for a moment. If 24% yeah. report that, we all have at least one other person in our life, right? Yeah. Mother, father, sister, brother, lover, best friend, even if it's a paid caregiver, even if it's a paid lover, it's, it's one other person in our life that also benefits. So it's not 24% of the population. It's at least 50. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that 60 or 70% benefit from this. There's, and it costs nothing. So what's the problem? The attitudinal problem. Preconceived notions of what people with disabilities are capable of. So that's the fight. I think we have to demand more as a community. We have to stop sitting quietly. And, uh, you know, it's hard, you know, many, many advocates, not, or sorry, there's not many advocates who sit quietly. But in larger groups, you know, not just not just rely on our usual suspects, but as consumers, we have to demand more, and we have to demand it with our wallets. And we have wallets, and 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 to not put up with this, you know, buying an apartment you have to modify right away is insane. Mm -hmm. So all these kinds of things, we have to overcome the attitudinal thing. But some of the attitudinal thing is our own. We we can't keep blaming architects. It's not the architect's fault. The owner has to want it first. Right. It, 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 how do you solve it? I, we, we as a, a, the collective, we have been trying to solve this for decades. Mm -hmm. And we'll keep trying because it, 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 it's a hard thing to sell. But what, what I'm really, I'm really noticing a seismic shift right now. And some of it is, is regulatory, like the Accessible Canada's Act is, is really yes. causing some people to look at the thing. The real point of all of that side of things is really just to get the industry to look at it, to understand it. And instead of running in fear, see it as an opportunity. And when I talk to people in the architectural world, or I talk to people in the industry, and I, when I get that light to go on for them, when they see the opportunity, boy, the resistance just melts. If somebody wants to contact the Rick Hansen Foundation and, and go through this training or find out how accessible they are, what, how do they go about that? Oh, the best place is the Rick Hansen website, rickhansen.com. Okay. And there's all kinds of things there. The, the training opportunities, we have Accessibility 101, which is uh, accessible, sorry, Accessible Spaces 101, which is an introductory course on universal design and get people up to speed if they just want to know it generally. Hmm. A professional course is the RHFAC, the Accessibility Certification Training Program. It's for industry professionals. Um, I, 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 I see as a great opportunity for people with disabilities to take that course and become mm -hmm. access consultants because who better? Yeah. Uh, to take that course, there are prerequisites, but we can help you get there. Um, uh, you know, because of the nature, it's a very technical course. So you have to understand how to read codes and plans and those kinds of things. But uh, if you're a person with a disability with an interest in this area, connect with us, please. We, we have resources and you can find ways of, of getting you through the course and, and, that's what's going to change things. We need to be more active as a community. 
not just and pounding on the desk and, and, and demanding more, you know, in the newspapers, but every day, making sure that people understand the issues on, on every project and keep yes. asking that question, how will this affect people with disabilities, whether it's your church or your you know, local, local grocery store being expanded or, you know, you see it all the time. Every time you, they, you know, they announced the, the new city, what the city of Vancouver is going to look like in the future. Nobody, nobody's talking about what that means to older adults and seniors with disabilities. Yeah. Nobody's talking about that. Thank you so much, Brad. I've learned so I much. I could go on all day, couldn't I? I <laughs> really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your experience. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing too. Uh, it, 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 it's a lifelong thing for me. I, I love it. it when you, I, I see change all around. So it's hard. I know it's hard at a consumer level to see some of the changes going on right now. And I, I honestly, I get a little pushback because I'm, I'm working it with the industry as opposed to a consumer program. There's a really good consumer program called Access Now, which works at Access at a street level. And I'm really, you do great work. Thank you so much. And thank you, Ishta, for joining me. No problem. Thank you for having me. Like, like you said, Sean, I've learned so much. And, um, and like you said, Brad, this is an ongoing conversation about universal design. So I'm hoping a lot more people will get involved in this. Um, I think it's very important. So thank you. Well, there's more than one show you could do on this. He hinted subtly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we will. There's way more to say for sure. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast, like, subscribe, leave us a rating and join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.